Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Spring is in bloom in the Bayou State, which means festivals, outdoor gatherings, and of course, Easter. And if you grew up in the Gulf South, there's a good chance your Easter basket was filled with treats from Elmer Chocolate our state's very own Heritage Candy Company. On this week's show, we hop over to Ponchatoula to tour the factory where Elmer's prized Goldbricks, Heavenly Hash, and Pecan Eggs are made. Then, we stop by Brennan's Restaurant where each spring their famous courtyard turtles go on parade. Finally, we brave the rain for a rollicking cocktail tour conducted by Richard Reed, Elizabeth Pierce, and Alison Alsop, authors of the French Quarter Drinking Companion. So turn down those cheeping chicks and turn up the radio. It's springtime on Louisiana Eats. With a heritage that reaches back to 1855, Elmer Chocolate is not only the oldest candy maker in Louisiana, but one of the oldest in the nation. Today's president and CEO, Rob Nelson, is the third generation of only the second family to guide the Elmer Chocolate Company. He invited Louisiana Eats to Ponchatoula, where once a year, their automated plant returns to a hands-on manufacturing process to satiate our state's love for Elmer's Easter candy. Upon arriving, I asked Rob how the company had come to develop such a delicious reputation. Well, I think in any business, you have to be the best at whatever you do if you're going to be around for the long haul. So... For the things that we've we've chosen to, to concentrate as being our business, uh, we have, I think, the most efficient plan in the world for what we do. We're making about 3,000 pieces a minute, so we're, you know, we're making four and a half, five million pieces of candy a day. Uh, we've devised a way to, to capture that and move it around efficiently. And none of our chocolates for box chocolate are ever touched by human hands. So uh, it's made on state-of-the-art equipment. As it's moved around, it's encased, uh, kind of a configuration we've designed. And then it's packed by robotic arm, picks it up, puts it in the box at very high speeds. So we have multiple lines. But if all of our lines were making that same product, we could make 800 boxes of candy every minute. Uh, now, people locally know us for Easter candy. They don't even know that we're in box chocolates, a lot of people. But Easter candy is a very, very small part of our business. We only run it for about six weeks. We're making it the same way it's been made for decades. And, and, and really for the reason that uh, in, here in Louisiana, people expect what they expect, and we can't change it. So we do it the same way. 
Your Easter candy business in the Gulf South is truly standalone. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. And every year, there's a national leader throughout the country, the number one item in the United States. But in this market, from Beaumont, Texas to Mobile, Alabama, about as far north as I-20, there are three items that outsell that item in this market. And that's gold brick, heavenly hash, and pecan eggs. Why is that? I think, uh, you know, it's a tradition. There are people that uh, they buy it at this time of year and they store it in their freezer to have it all year long. I have a lot of evidence to that and I hear a lot of stories to that effect. One, uh, after the Saints won the Super Bowl, we did a Saints version of the Gold Brick Heavenly Hash and it, it sold really well. But I could tell the people even hoarded that because it affected next year's Easter sales. So you know that there's something going on there. The other thing, uh, and they say that there's no such thing as bad publicity, but uh, front page, New York Times, not long after Katrina, you know, the days of everybody pulling their, their refrigerator out to the street, and then the street was lined with refrigerators, well, they had a photograph of a freezer, and it was filled with our product. <laughs> Didn't look so good in September of uh, 2005, but uh, there it was, front page of the New York Times. So you grew up in this business. What are your earliest memories? I know you said you went to work with your dad as a child a lot, but tell me about growing up in a chocolate business. What was that like? So Easter was really the bread and butter of the company at that point in time, and and the selling process was different. I mean, we had people going to the stores in New Orleans, and you know we had K&B, and we had Schwegmans, and we had all these other retailers that just bought so much. I mean, you would go to a K&B drugstore and one side of the aisle was us and the other side of the aisle was everybody else so it it was major and every good Friday growing up I was here in this building helping to load trucks we would load trucks on good Friday we would load trucks the day before Easter so you know my friends were going to Florida for for Easter or whatever and, and I was driving a truck and I do remember as a kid you know waiting for those last orders on the day before Easter and in between trucks we would skateboard through the factory because I mean there are these perfectly smooth floors and I mean there's no it's a lot easier to skateboard in the Elmer Candy factory rather than on the streets of New Orleans so uh, it really worked out well and I a lot of times I was able to bring friends to come do that you know it was it was work but it was fun today everything's sold on data it goes in we sell it you know by Valentine's Day for Easter and we don't make any more. Elaborate for me a bit about how you managed to go from this very high-tech production to hands-on, hand-dipping, hand-wrapping, low-tech Easter production. You know, it's a challenge. Uh, you know, it, it just it's a whole different skill set. Um, it's a whole different set of equipment, and, and, and it's almost like each year we have to remember how to do it. We all like to sometimes get our hands in the dough in the kitchen, right? And certainly it's fun to do something that's appreciated. Uh, For people that work here, sometimes they're thought of as being celebrities in their neighborhood because that's what they do, you know? So it's just, it's it's fun. It's amazing how much attention we get this time of year for something we only do six weeks a year. Hey, Hey, Miss Sarah, how are you? I had to see for myself what happens in a state-of-the-art chocolate factory when time is rolled back over 50 years. Just real quick, we just need to wash our hands. 
and uh, get some alcohol gel. As the exposed shiny marshmallow insides of heavenly hash passed on a constantly moving belt, several ladies stood by, each poking two whole almonds into every egg. There's not very many marshmallows out there on the market you can do this to. A little further along, a group stood around a vat of chopped pecans, coating the nougat eggs with nuts as they were hand-tossed about. Much of the wrapping and packing was done completely by hand as well. A far cry from the mechanized precision that drives their production the rest of the year. The cold stamp room over here, this is the driest place in the state of Louisiana. It's 1% humidity. <laughs> When this line was installed, it was the best line in the United States. Does your sugar come from all over the world, I imagine? No, it comes from Louisiana. About 70% of all cacao beans are coming from Western Africa. So I would say all the beans that we're using are coming from, from Ghana. And, and cacao trees grow within 20 degrees of the Earth equator, so it's, you're limited where it can grow. And, and Africa is the biggest producer, and those beans will come to the United States, and then we bring it in by tank truck. So a big tanker truck full of chocolate arrives yeah, so here. Yeah, huh? stainless steel trucks on the highway. Yes. You, know, you think maybe that's oil, maybe that's gasoline. It, it could be chocolate. <laughs> and I had a story one time, this is a long time ago, this is probably back in the 70s, but we had a truck that was delivering chocolate and he took a wrong turn, and he went down the wrong street here in Ponchatoula. Anyway, he was going over a railroad crossing, I think he jackknifed the truck, and so the chocolate started coming out the top of the truck. And all the kids in the neighborhood ran over and were like showering in the chocolate. They thought it was the most amazing thing ever. Oh, that's crazy. No, we didn't use that chocolate yeah. after. <laughs> Rob Nelson, President and CEO of the Elmer Chocolate Company. At Brennan's Restaurant in New Orleans, the staff practices the art of sabrage. Where did the tradition of sabering champagne bottles originate? And how do you do that anyhow? Stay tuned, and we'll tell you all about it when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, 
synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Where did the tradition of sabering champagne originate? And how do you do that anyhow? When you saber a bottle of champagne, you use a saber or a cleaver or similar heavy object to open a champagne bottle. The act itself is called sabrage. A properly sabered bottle causes the bottle itself to break off cleanly at the lip, with the cage flying off in advance, followed by the cork with the bottle's lip intact. Depending on the instrument you're wielding, it's pretty easy to do. First, whether using sword or knife, it's the blunt edge, not the sharp one used. Holding the bottle from the base in one hand, the sword swiftly travels up the neck to the rim, where, with a single motion, cork, rim, and cage are released, along with a celebratory stream of bubbly. This technique is said to date back to Napoleon Bonaparte and his amazing victorious army. According to Napoleon, champagne was a necessity in times of war, quaffing it in both victory and defeat. People threw bottles to the returning soldiers on horseback, who then simply sabered them open. In legend, this became a hallmark of Napoleon's army. But alas, it's the stuff of legends, having never been historically substantiated. The weekly sabering tradition in Brennan's Royal Street patio is creating new legends and lore alike. By the way, the ceremony at Brennan's is conducted with the full blessing of the International Confrère de Sabre d'Or. The confrère made a visit to Brennan's a few years back, where they inspected the procedure in action and declared Brennan's an official sabrage caveau. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. With a history dating back to 1946, Brennan's Restaurant is home to several long-running traditions. Today, Diners can enjoy Brennan's world-famous breakfast and Bananas Foster, just as they did over a half-century ago. The New Orleans mainstay also has a reputation for its high-spirited style and flair, an atmosphere established by founder Owen Brennan and cultivated by his sister Ella. Since renovating and reopening Brennan's in 2014, Current owners, Ralph Brennan and Terry White, have started some new traditions while keeping up that spirit of fun. 
perhaps the most whimsical, is an annual event that celebrates 10 turtles who inhabit the fountain pool in Brennan's patio. In what's been dubbed the slowest second line on Earth, these tranquil terrapins are paraded on handmade wagon floats through the streets of the French Quarter, led by a brass band and police escort. Upon arrival at Brennan's, the crew of turtles rolls down a custom-made green carpet into the courtyard. Here, the party really gets started, as General Manager Christian Pendleton sabers a bottle of champagne for the raucous crowd. Welcome back to Brennan's, everyone, and just think, everywhere else in the country, it's just a Saturday right now. In 2019, Special Projects Manager Reggie Morris attended the reception and spoke with some of the people who make the event possible. So I'm Ralph Brennan. I am the co-proprietor of Brennan's Restaurant. And today we're celebrating turtles. My name is Simone Rathley, and I am the PR consultant for Ralph Brennan Restaurant Group. And I had the privilege of being able to write Topsy-Turvy History and Ten Tiny Turtles. When we took over the restaurant, we inherited ten turtles. And uh, we didn't know that, so we came over one day and discovered them. We decided to do some major renovation to the building. And the contractor said, you need to move the turtles, because we're going to make a lot of mess here, and it's not good for the turtles. So they moved to the West Bank, to Algiers Point to stay with Haley Bitterman and her family. Haley's the executive chef of our company. And we thought they were gonna be gone six months and they wound up being gone 16 months because that's how long the renovation took. And so we decided, because you know, we love parades in New Orleans, we decided to celebrate the return of the turtles to the pond here in Brennan's where they lived for many, many years. And we did a parade. And we parade about eight blocks from our office on the other side of the quarter up to Jackson Square and back here and just come in and have a celebration. Well, the turtles definitely had to be celebrated coming back because they were a part of the history of Brennan's. They had been in there, but really not talked about as much, not as a fixture of what the whole history of Brennan's is. So we wanted to really shine the light on them. What are the other festivities that are going on around the turtles? I noticed there were some hors d'oeuvres and uh, some drinks and that sort of thing. Sure. I mean, you, you need a little food and beverage to celebrate here. And so we just make some cocktails, some of our famous cocktails here, like our Caribbean Milk Punch and Bloody Mary. And we're, we're passing hors d'oeuvres. And we'll do that for another hour or so. But we, we invite uh, people to come in, and, and people come from all over. Some people even bring their own turtles with them. Uh, some people just told me a few minutes ago that, you know, this is like their fourth year coming. Uh, a gentleman told me today that he brought his mother. His mother came in for Mother's Day, and she's from San Diego, and he brought her over here to celebrate, and he's been here several years. And th what we do in the courtyard, and we've done this for a while, is because we kind of bless just about everything here in Louisiana. A friend of ours, Monsignor Nalty from St. Stephen's Church uptown, comes over and gives a blessing for the turtles. And then we have a judge, uh, her name is Lauren Lemon. She comes in and pardons the turtles, kind of like the president does for the turkeys on Thanksgiving. May I have your attention, please? Quiet! My name is Lauren Lemon, and I am a judge in St. Charles Parish. Order! Order! I said order! 
Well, this is the fifth turtle parade and the fourth pardoning. I have done the pardonings from the beginning and it's been an honor, the privilege is mine. And I write these poems, that's been the way I've done it. And so I decided this year to do something different. So last night, my phone rang. I had a call from Mr. Beep and it was the turtles. The turtles called me and said, we're scheming. Uh, and what, what did the turtles have to say? The turtles said, you know, we're pretty upset and we're tired of being afraid. They said, this is their home. And they mustered up some courage and decided to turn the pardon around to Mr. Brennan and the people. And so they wrote this rap song for me. I've never rapped in my life before except to my children. And I can't say I'm good at it, but with the crowd participation, it worked out okay. very surprised um, about a revolt of the turtles. Well, hmm, is that going to be something maybe of a second book? I'm not sure. But it was quite inspiring for the author who's talking right now. She surprised all of us. Uh, Judge Lemon normally, you know, does a regular pardon. And today she turned the tide on us. She did a great job. Uh, Actually, when I told her how good of a job she did after she did it. I said, when you go to one of your judicial conferences, you ought to get up there, explain the law like you did today. (laughs) She was wonderful. But still, they're in good company. They're fed well. I don't see that revolt. She's causing a little trouble. We're going to have to have a talk with Judge Lemon. So there won't be any turtle soup, at least not with the turtles from the fountain this year. No, these turtles are safe. They'll never be in the turtle soup. I'll tell you a secret. I love Brennan's turtle soup. (laughs) I'm from South Louisiana, I grew up on the bayou, and we have pet turtles and we eat turtle soup. We have pet rabbits and we eat rabbit. And the list goes on. My grandmother, I have a video of her that I cherish. It's a black and white video where she is cleaning a big snapping turtle. And her husband, my grandfather, is wiping her brow with a handkerchief and feeding her her old-fashioned while she is cleaning the turtle for the best turtle soup in the world. So we've had many turtle soups in our lives and I've actually turtle hunted before. But these particular turtles will never be soup. All right, thanks everybody, have a good time. If we can get the kids down here to help us put the turtles back in the pond in their home, that'd be great, help us out. Judge Lauren Lemon, Ralph Brennan, and Simone Rathley at the 2019 Turtle Parade at Brennan's Restaurant, speaking with Louisiana Eats' very own Reggie Morris. 
Orleans French Quarter is world-renowned for its bar scene, offering a wide range of drinking options from classic cocktails to technicolor drinks in fishbowl glasses. With its wealth of watering holes, picking a place to grab a drink here can be daunting for locals and travelers alike. For me as a traveler, and I'll admit it, a drinker, when I come to a city that I'm not familiar with, I want to know a little bit more. I want the insider's take on what these bars, what these restaurants and clubs are like. So I think one of the most telling ways to do that is to figure out who it is that you're, you're drinking with. You know, just apart from the bartender and what their specials are and all the, the decor and all that, the clientele tells you whether you're going to be comfortable there. That was Richard Reed who, along with Allison Alsop and Elizabeth Pierce, set out to do just that with their 2013 book, The French Quarter Drinking Companion. That same year, Louisiana Eats joined the three authors at Tujac's, the starting place of what would become a rain-soaked walking tour of quarter bars. But first, they shared their insights into the abundance of bars in the Vieux Carré. Well, first, we made a list of every establishment that we could identify as a place where you could get a drink. And that number was enormous. So we began to eliminate. We eliminated strip clubs because you don't go there to drink. And uh, then we looked at, there are lots of restaurants where you can drink. So we tried to only feature restaurants that had some element that was notable about drinking there. An example would be the Bourbon House because it has over 100 different bourbons that you can try. And then we just had the list of bars. And this list was acquired by me and uh, Allison and Richard walking up and down the streets of the French Quarter. And then we began to discuss and argue for and against. And so we pared it down to something that was manageable to begin. So you actually cover about 100 bars. I want to know what the hardest part in doing this really tough research was. Well, I think the hardest part that in the end turned out to be a gift, really, was for me personally, I uh, really thought that I would dislike covering the Bourbon Street bars. I thought, like a lot of locals, you know, this is a street, you just hold your breath, you put on your game face, you just quickly dart across the street and you get on to your other destination. But one of the surprises in the end was that even though we kept a lot of those bourbon street bars to the end of our research, is just how much I ended up really enjoying Bourbon Street and seeing its purpose, its place, its need in the city. And also along the way, the little places that you can go on Bourbon, like Johnny White's or Fretzel's or the old Absence House, where they feel different from the rest of the streets. Kind of step in and get a little refuge, but still be able to, in this very voyeuristic way, look out onto Bourbon Street and see all the action. For each bar that you cover, There are a list of questions that you answer right off the bat, and that includes what your bar tab will be, what you're wearing, what you're hearing. I have to say, I kind of stopped with tattoo themes. Why did we put tattoo themes in this book, y'all? I will take the credit or, or, (laughs) or blame for that. 
when I was much younger, I thought briefly that I would have a career as a cultural anthropologist. And I got kind of obsessed for a while with tattoos and sort of figuring out which cliques, which groups of people had which sorts of tattoos. For example, the sorts of tattoos that maybe motorcycle riders get are different than the sorts that sorority girls get, you know, on a weekend in New Orleans. So to me, the tattoos are really an extension of the dress code, because to me, they tell you as much about the people as anything. They're indicative of particular trends, what people are into, and also age. God bless them, the people with the Elton John tattoos or the Ziggy tattoos are, you know, from, from one era. The people with the Betty Page tattoos are from another era. So to me, they're, they're very telling. I, maybe they'll be telling to some readers. If not, gloss over them and no harm done. I also think that the presence or absence of tattoos, or whether they're covered, is something that's noted. And I uh, evacuated to Oxford, Mississippi, for uh, because of Katrina, and something that I was very aware of within days of drinking there. Though I do not have a tattoo, I was very aware while out drinking that I never saw any, and I realized that I was not in New Orleans anymore. This is the trick question. Let's pretend an awful, terrible thing. What if it is last call for y'all in New Orleans? What is your favorite, favorite bar? What is the bar that you would choose to end your time here with? I know. I absolutely know. Um, because I've, I've thought about this a lot, the way that people think about their last meal. Yes. Um, my last drink would be made by Chris Hanna at French 75, and it would be an old-fashioned. The old-fashioned is my mother's favorite drink, Carolyn Tally Pierce, uh, who is a model in teaching me how to drink. And it is the drink that I grew up sipping. Uh, my entire drinking and non-drinking life is flavored with the uh, elements of bourbon, bitters, and sugar. And French 75 is intimate and beautiful, and I, I can't think of a better way to leave. Richard, how about you? I wish I were that classy. But um, <laughs> <laughs> my last drink would probably be a domestic beer, light if you please, at the Golden Lantern, ideally on Christmas Eve. There is a Christmas Eve drag show that happens at the Golden Lantern that is, I don't know if you've ever seen the John Waters movie, Pink Flamingos, but there's this party scene that takes place at the trailer that is just a complete bacchanal. That is the only way to describe it, and that is the polite, like family-friendly way of describing it. That's all I need. I need one good, very cold beer surrounded by a glorious freak show. You're not going to find that anywhere else. And what about you, Allison? This is a really tough question because I want to go both in the direction of Richard and in the direction of Elizabeth. So I'm going to say it's a tie between the Sazerac, at the Sazerac Bar in the Roosevelt Hotel, which, by the way, is the only bar that is not actually in the French Quarter, but that we had to make an exception for. And it gets my vote because of the tremendous service that you get in that bar. For $10, sitting down in one of those seats and 
water carafe brought to you, little Chex Mix brought to you, and it's windowless. So if the end of the world was coming, you wouldn't see it. You could pretend. That or sucking down shooters at Crazy Corner, absolutely day glow, alcohol, party till dawn until you just all die. One of those two. Now that we've heard what compelled the authors of the French Quarter Drinking Companion to write their book, when we come back, we'll hit the streets for cocktails in some very unlikely locations. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events itinerary suggestions and more at louisiananorthshore.com If you're just joining us, we've been speaking with Richard Reed, Elizabeth Pierce, and Allison Alsop. They're the authors of the French Quarter Drinking Companion, published in 2013 when we first broadcast this story. After hearing about the motivation behind their book, we set off to tour some of the more obscure bars in the quarter. Our first stop, Vachery, a hotel bar at the corner of Toulouse and Dauphine. The bar was crowded, so once we got our drinks, we huddled together under the outdoor awning, avoiding a sudden rain shower. Not a bad way to spend the afternoon, as Allison pointed out. We all know that drinking is an established tradition in the French Quarter, but sometimes we don't really stop to question why it is that it works so awfully well here. And one of the reasons is, is that it is just so simply easy. Unlike other places where you have to go and park and struggle and then take your car from bar to bar, here we just park if you have had a car at all, and either on foot or rickshaw or carriage, make your way through the quarter. And so part of the experience that we tried to capture in the book was not only just the experience of sitting in the bar, but of the actual ambulatory nature of meandering through the quarter, and that part of the entertainment is actually what's happening between the bars as well. Richard, in the book, one of the points that you all make is that drinking is fundamental to the identity of New Orleans. 
I would compare it to, say, the fascination that we have with festivals here. And what is so interesting to me about festivals is that festivals are sort of low commitment. You go to Jazz Fest, you have something at this booth, you have something at that booth, you hear a little music at this stage, a little music at that stage, and then you move on. Um, and the way that we drink in the quarter is very much the same. You go into a place, you don't particularly like the crowd, but they serve you a good drink. You can put it in a go cup and you can walk on to the next one. There's a very low threshold of commitment. It's not like you're stuck in one place. I won't name places in the United States where you're stuck there all night, but we all know what, what we're talking about, where you can't step outside with a drink. It's not like that at all here. It's just a, it's a relaxing way to go about an evening. Elizabeth, we're standing just outside of Vashery where there is a bar that I know you're particularly fond of. Why is that? Well, uh, I have become fond of Vashery and partially because of one of the bartenders who works here. Her name is Victoria and she used to serve me liberally and often at Le Chat Noir, which was a cabaret that closed uh, a few years ago and she moved over here. If you walk into Vashery, you wouldn't include it maybe with some of the iconic locations that a lot of people think about when they think about drinking in the French Quarter, like Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop or Pat O'Brien's. But I think Vashery embodies a particular kind of drinking that's really important in the French Quarter, and that is the hotel bar, where Victoria has shared with me she has acquired a different kind of regular. It's the regular who is staying in the hotel, who over a period of three or five days comes and drinks in her bar once, or I have seen several times. Um, I have come in at the beginning of a tour and uh, there were some folks who were finishing to go out and, and go get dinner. And when I returned, they were coming back to finish their night there. And so she gets to know people, even if it's over just, you know, a small period. But the other thing that she pointed out, and this is the other thing tourists forget, is that the French Quarter is a neighborhood. People live here, people work here. And on any given evening, if you walk into the bar at Vashery, the bar is full of locals who live within, you know, a two block stumbling radius. They are not unlike the hotel guests who uh, stop in on their way out or on their way back. So it, it isn't the neighborhood bar that we would normally imagine in most uh, areas of uh, New Orleans, but the hotel bar serves its local clientele as much as it might serve a tourist. So where are we gonna go next, guys? Well, I would suggest since we're on Dauphine Street already that we go for something that's a little more um, a little more upbeat, maybe, than where we are right now at Vashery, which is very calm, sedate, sort of relaxing bar. We'll go to Good Friends, which is a nice halfway point. It's a great place for a relaxing drink, but uh, if you want something a little more peppy, you can get that there, too. Okay, let's go. We walked a few blocks down Dauphine Street while the rain continued to fall. By the time we arrived at Good Friends, several regulars had already taken up residence at the bar. I asked Richard what makes this bar stand out among others in the French Quarter. Well, Good Friends is obvious is on what we in New Orleans, what the LGBT community calls the Fruit Loop, 
which is actually more of an L than a, than a technical loop. And every bar on the loop is a little different. So you have Lafitte's in Exile, you have the pub in Oz, you have Good Friends, and you have Rawhide. And what I love about Good Friends is that while the music here is certainly energetic and it's a fun place to meet friends and hang out, it can be a very relaxing place. It's a great place to come at the end of the night if you're looking for a nightcap or if you're just sort of starting out the evening and you want to ease into it. You can have a very civilized drink. They have a great selection of liqueurs, cognacs, that sort of stuff. There's a little bar upstairs that's totally charming and friendly. Uh, if you're here when the weather is great, there's a balcony. Great people watching, especially during some of the festivals like Southern Decadence and obviously during Carnival. It's right in the middle of all that. But it's also like a little oasis. It's kind of um, calm and quiet. It's not, the music never gets too loud. You can always have a great conversation. And that to me what is the hallmark of a great bar, is a place where you can have a really good conversation. You know, I was particularly fascinated when I read the French Quarter Drinking Companion to read that term the Fruit Loop, because I had never heard that before. And I even paused and I said to myself, is that even politically correct? I would just say that that's one of those words we have to own. <laughs> that is, honestly, it's been called that since I was a kid. And kind of disparagingly, but always with a warmth. It's just one of those places that when you have guests in town, you want to take them to the Fruit Loop because it's a great array of bars. And not only that, but you can walk from one to the other. It's a little sampler platter of everything that the community has to offer. Not absolutely everything. There are some others that lie off the beaten path a little more, like Corner Pocket. But this, this gives you a pretty good lay of the land. Also, there's always something happening down here. There's always some sort of contest or drag show or something like that to keep you entertained and occupied that you're not going to see in wherever it is that you're from that is not New Orleans. I think that... Something that crosses a lot of visitors' minds when we're talking about something like the LGBT scene in New Orleans and bars like this, you know, I think often there's a question, well, is it okay to go if you're straight? Would you address that? Well, I would say that Richard has been a lovely ambassador to introducing us to some of these bars. And Good Friends was definitely a favorite of mine. I can walk in here. I can feel welcome. There is absolutely no pressure to be anything that I am not. So I don't think anyone should feel as though they are not entitled or welcome to come into any bar whatsoever. It is part of the experience of New Orleans, and it should be experienced no matter what your sexuality is, regardless. I would also add that to me that whole mixture, that melange, is really what makes drinking in the quarter so interesting to me. You go to other cities and you go drinking, and it doesn't matter if you're a straight bar or a gay bar or someplace in between, each bar has its own type. You know, you go to one bar and it's a little preppy and another is a little more rock and roll. And so many bars here in the French Quarter, like you walk into the Abbey, is my favorite example. <laughs> the Abbey and you're standing there and it's, you know, people who have just gotten off a shift. It's like two o'clock in the morning and they've just worked for eight hours in a very, very hot restaurant kitchen. And they're standing next to some goth kids from out in the suburbs who are standing next to a wedding couple who just got hitched and are just sort of stumbled out of their own wedding reception next to some, you know, debutante who just wandered down the street from Maximo's. Who knows? 
who, who you're going to be rubbing shoulders with. And uh, I think the LGBT bars are a great example of that in action. It's open to anybody. So, Elizabeth, where are we going to go next? Well, it's not a trip to the quarter unless you go to Bourbon Street. So we're going to head down to Johnny White's Hole in the Wall, number two. The weather cleared up significantly as we traipsed towards Bourbon Street. Dodging empty beer cans and puddles of rain under a sea of flashing neon lights, we ducked into a small bar in the seventh block of New Orleans' most notorious street. I am most surprised to learn of the existence of Johnny White's 2. In our book, we're constantly noting the things that others might pass by or that even locals might know about, and I felt like this bar was definitely one of them. We're on Bourbon, all of the mayhem of Bourbon is happening just outside of these doors, and yet you can just step through this little set of French doors and enter into this very narrow bar which takes us back to the history of New Orleans when Bourbon Street was not the mayhem that it is now, but was this premier residential street. And Johnny White's, if you look closely, you can still see in the architecture here the signs that we were in someone's salon, their parlor, their living room, and that this house used to just step out and onto this residential street. We've got a, a mantle in front of us. We still have some of the woodwork on the walls. And if you look towards the front of the bar, you can see the beam that probably led out onto the porch. So this is one place that I think just when you think that you have figured out the quarter or figured out bourbon, it throws you a little surprise and it always offers something if you look just a little bit closer. So Johnny White's itself, you know, has this legendary presence, right, as, you know, the bar that never closed or whatever. But what I really responded to was the bartender's delight in how it shifts through the day from one kind of clientele to the other like a sundial sort of moving around in this circle the clientele of Johnny White's changes and uh, can't be pinned down to only one description. I think both of the Johnny White's bars has that feel. You can come in, you don't need to know anyone, you can easily strike up a conversation with the bartender or who's sitting next to you. It might be over the game or what's playing on the jukebox, but this is an easy bar to come into and made to be feel welcome. And there are some bars in this world where you feel like you have to show up with someone else, and there's other bars in this world where you can come in alone. And this is a bar that you can come in alone and have no issue with it whatsoever. That was a day in the Vieux Carré with the authors of the French Quarter Drinking Companion. Since we first ran that story, both Johnny White's bars, one and two, have closed their doors. After celebrating its 50th anniversary in 2019, the New Orleans Dive Bar Institution served its last drink in the fall of 2020. According to the co-owners of Johnny White's, the closure was a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. 
edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longlinay. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.